Well, our theme during these weeks is the theme of redemption, and more specifically, trying to get us to work with the theme of what does it feel like to be redeemed? How do we concretely experience the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus makes as we follow him? And that word redeemed is, you know, it it gets filled with a lot of different things, but essentially it just means to be brought out of, to be freed from a kind of slavery and, and released into a new life. And it's something that isn't just about what happens after we're dead. It's something that is a question that is much bigger than where we go after we die. It is an experience that we have now in Christ as we follow him, as we come and see, as we're led into a brand new life and a, and a new place. Eternal life isn't something that happens after we die. Eternal life is something that begins now and continues into eternity via resurrection. So Psalm 107 is really, uh, I think, a, a way of helping us to work with this sense of the concrete realities of redemption in our lives right now. It gives us four very concrete metaphors for, for redemption and Last week, we talked about one of those metaphors, which is wilderness, being delivered out of the wilderness or the desert or thirst. And today we want to talk about darkness or imprisonment or or bondage. And we're going to look at Psalm 107, verses 10 through 16. But as I did last week, I'm going to read the introductory verses in verse 3 and then skip to verse 10 for this second of of the four metaphors. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those whom he redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor, They fell down with no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their bonds asunder. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, help us to know personally that slavery from which you have freed us and that hope into which you have delivered us. Then empower us to reflect the liberty of the light of your love as we live our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Marianne and I had the opportunity to go to a uh, author presentation, a book talk, if you will, at Third Place Books on Thursday night. David Gooderson, who wrote Snow Falling on Cedars, has got a new book, and we went to hear him speak. I hadn't realized it, but he was a high school English teacher when he wrote uh, Snow Falling on Cedars, and he spoke a little bit of the importance of that experience in his life. And how much he felt like he was handling, he didn't use the word holy, but I will, uh, handling holy things by working with those students for those 10 years that he taught English. 
And it reminded me of the importance of English teachers in my life. They were very important for me in high school and college. I look back on them now and I see them almost as priests administering sacraments of sorts, literature, if you will. At a time of self-discovery, what they were giving students were texts to ponder, and they gave me something to ruminate on and, and helped, I think, with the process of discovery. But that process of discovery, as all processes of discovery are, is somewhat of a two-edged sword. <laughs> Those texts can cut a number of ways and can lead you in a number of directions. Because on the one hand, those texts invited me to question my life, question my childhood faith. They were fuel to something like what the prodigal son experienced, I think, and that process of heading off into the far country in order to find myself and to declare my independence. They took me away from God, if you will. But on the other hand, some of those same texts helped me to frame questions that gave birth to a process that led to the formation, if you will, of my adult faith and a faith of my own. And the canon of scripture, so to speak, that I kind of latched onto in high school and early college were the writings of the 20th century French existentialists Camus and Sartre. Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre. They kind of gave me my canon for this journey, and they gave me a kind of philosophical container for my quest. And because they were agnostic and atheist, they seemed to be a safe place to explore my childhood faith <laughs> for me at the time, because that's what I was feeling like, a bit of an agnostic. And neither Camus nor Sartre had any interest in convincing someone to become an agnostic, or an atheist, they just hadn't experienced God and thus concluded that even if God did exist, that he wasn't making much of a point of himself, so why bother? And that's kind of the way I felt. So either way, it was up to each one of us, according to Camus and Sartre, to decide how we were going to make our lives purposeful. They were concerned with our response to the heaven and the hell that are here and now and calling us away from any contemplation of what might happen beyond this life, but to root our more, ourselves more deeply in it. They were singing my song at the time, and one of the pieces of literature that spoke to me the most was Sartre's play, No Exit. I don't know whether you know this play, but it's a version of hell. Sartre didn't believe in hell, but it's a great literary tool and he did a good job of depicting it. And how he depicted it was three people in a room that they could get into but couldn't get out of. And the play is essentially the three of them torturing one another psychologically. It's a real happy play. <laughs> but it speaks a kind of truth. And at the end of the play, we have this conclusion. One of the characters says suddenly, oh, I get it. Don't you see? Hell is other people. <laughs> and then the last line of the play is one of the characters saying, well then, let's get on with it. You know, it's not a real uplifting stuff for an 18-year-old. 
But it told a truth that made sense to me. And that I think we all have to understand that at certain points in our lives, hell is other people. And so we go and search for a world where we can be safe from them. There's some undeniable truth in it, and the question it begged was whether or not there was a way out of it. <laughs> whether or not Sartre's no exit actually had an exit, a door that would lead to something better than the hell of other people. And I think Psalm 107 testifies in some ways to the hope that there is, that there is release from this prison of self where the only world is, that, is the self that we have. This sense that other people torture us and so we have to seek a way to insulate ourselves from that torture and we have only ourselves to cope with and thus protect ourselves from those places that would bring us into that hell. I think Psalm 107 gives witness, first of all, to how we get into that place of hell. How we rebel, as the psalmist says, against the words of God and spurn the counsel of the Most High. Essentially what we do is we try and free ourselves from the undeniable truth that we have a maker. We seek freedom. But it's a search that in some ways puts us in Sartre's room without an exit. The cell of self. The cell of hearing and trying to protect nothing but ourselves. The isolation in a very small place, a life without trust. The hell of always needing to be on guard for the damage that might be done. It's a life of darkness and gloom, as the, the psalmist says, a, a misery in irons because our hearts get worn down with the hard labor of trying to protect ourselves from this world that can only hurt us. We run away, however, only to find a different kind of bondage. It's a bondage to self. And the props we put in place to keep ourselves safe from anything that might hurt us. Another piece of literature that adds to this story is Hamlet, the play, and the prayer of Claudius that I've quoted before here, who after killing his brother and marrying his brother's wife and trying to figure out a way of getting rid of Hamlet and realizing that someone has discovered his sin and not knowing what he's going to do about that, kneels to pray, and he says, pray I cannot, uh, and goes on to describe why he cannot pray, because he will have to give up what he himself has acquired. And at the end of the prayer, he says, O limed soul, yearning to breathe free, and yet art more enslaved. It's essentially that kind of slavery that rests in the way in which we deny the truth that Augustine talks about in the first part of his confessions when he says to God, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So how does that liberation from this misery that the psalmist described take place? 
Well, it's, it's actually pretty simple, and it's the simple act of turning around. Seeing that God hasn't stopped pursuing us while we've been trying to run away from God. And so the psalmist says, we cried to the Lord in our trouble. We turned around. We woke up. We, for some reason, saw that crack of light in the dungeon wall and realized there was something bigger that we could actually belong to than that small, small world of self that we created for ourselves. And then, says the psalmist, and God delivered us from our distress. He delivered us out of darkness into light. He brings the doors that we made for ourselves to keep ourselves sheltered. He shatters them. He beats them down. And the bars that we put up to keep others out, he snaps like matchsticks, as Eugene Peterson says. And set free from the bondage of our attempt to free ourselves from God, we experience that magnificent defeat of self that helps us to find our true self, the one that God made. Well, Sartre spoke of a version of hell that was no exit. And interestingly enough, Christian C.S. Lewis also has a version of hell. A version that is, to some extent, similar to what Sartre describes, that hell is other people. He wrote a book called The Great Divorce, where he describes hell. And Lewis's version of hell is a place where... It's, as I've quoted before, the dull gray city with the eternal hope of mourning, where people keep moving out of the center of the city into farther and farther places away from the center of the city so that they can be away from one another and isolated from one another. It's a sprawling place with no there there, no center to it, and what was the center is nothing but a bunch of antiquarian bookshops now. Only Lewis would see that as hell. But, um, <laughs> but the, the reality is it's the same thing that Sartre said. A place where people fear one another and cannot connect because they have to keep themselves safe. The great divorce is all about the prison of self. But Lewis the Christian also has a version of, of heaven in his book, The Great Divorce. And there's much more room in heaven than there is in that place where people keep making room for one another and moving farther and farther away from each other. Heaven is the place where relationships thrive, where growth continues, where people are always discovering how big God is and, as Lewis says, are going on a journey of being going further up and further into an awareness of a discovery of who God made them to be. There's a hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, and it speaks to this process uh, in a shorter time than I could ever speak to it. The third verse of that hymn goes like this, and I think he describes exactly what I'm trying to say today. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
The prison from which we all need to be freed is the prison where we have nothing but ourselves. And the stultifying, cramped world that we create and desperately try to maintain. But we're created for more than that. And God has never stopped pursuing us in order to offer that. And for our part, all we need to do is turn around and take God up on his offer. Let's pray. Help us to perceive those cracks of light that break through the walls of the dungeon, O God. And to know beyond any doubt that there is something bigger than the room in which we have placed ourselves and closed the door, hoping that we won't have to come out. Or you call us out and invite us on a journey and want to give us the gift of life. Help us to claim it, O God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.